How many of you have ever been to Canton, Ohio? Canton, Ohio, okay. How many of you have ever been to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio? All right, cool place to visit, nice little day trip you can make. Within a few miles of the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, there's a church called the Canton Baptist Temple. If you go there and you walk through that church building, it's very large and it's very elegant, you will find hallway after hallway lined with painted portraits of Christian heroes from years gone by. They call it the Christian Hall of Fame there in Canton, Ohio. I was there earlier this year for a funeral and I love just walking through the halls and looking at all of the portraits there. Each one had the person's life story uh, inscribed on a plaque beneath their picture there. So I read story after story of these godly people down through the centuries who carried the torch of the Christian faith from back in New Testament times all the way up to the present day. Church fathers, missionaries, evangelists, uh, pastors, reformers, Bible scholars, all of them were faithful to preserve and pass on the Christian faith. And I remember just driving away very inspired by the reminder that as I try to walk with Christ in my life, I follow in the footsteps of hundreds upon hundreds of faithful and godly men and women who ran the race before me in ages past and who ran it very well. As many of you know, there's another Christian Hall of Fame as well, and this one is found in the Bible. It's often called the Hall of Faith, and it's found in Hebrews chapter 11, and that's where we're gonna be today, so if you have a Bible or a device with the Bible on it, you can go to Hebrews chapter 11. And what we find there is a, a tribute to men and women who lived back in the Old Testament era, who possessed a living faith in the one true God, and it was a faith that showed up. It showed up in their actions, it showed up in how they lived their lives, and the testimony of each one is that their faith pleased God. Today we're gonna to take, I guess, kind of a virtual tour of sorts through the halls of that gallery of faith, and we're gonna gaze at a few of those portraits that hang there, and at the very end, I guess we could say there's a plaque on the wall that has this challenge from Hebrews 12. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. And this is the very purpose of the Hebrews Hall of Faith. The lives of those faith heroes were meant to inspire our lives. The stories of their persevering faith was intended to strengthen us as we run our race here in the 21st century. In fact, this verse tells us that even now, they are all rooting for us. They're rooting for us. Those deceased saints of old are still living and together they comprise this cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, who sit in the grandstands of heaven cheering us on today. Did you know that? They're pulling for you. They're pulling for you to break free from the things that bind you and entangle you in this life. They're urging you, they're cheering for us to remain faithful to Christ all the way home, all the way to the finish line, just like they did. It's as if they're shouting at us, you can do this! You can do this by the grace of God. We did, and you can do this too. 
so encouraging to me. This great faith chapter, Hebrews 11, where their stories are told, opens up by telling us what faith is. Hebrews chapter 11, verse one. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And this is what the ancients, these ancient men and women were commended for or approved for. And so faith is having a settled assurance in our, in our hearts that, that two kinds of things are really real, future things and invisible things. Future rewards that God has promised his people that we all hope for, and it says unseen things that God says are really real right now even though we can't see them with our physical eyes. So people of faith are those who believe in the reality of things that they cannot see. They're certain they exist because God says they exist and so faith really is being convinced in your heart that God's word is true, that he's telling us the truth. So our tour of the Hall of Faith is about to begin. But first let me make a few observations about uh, the people and the stories that we're gonna encounter in Hebrews 11. The first observation is the writer assumes that his readers were familiar with these people and their stories. That's evident because he doesn't go into a lot of detail. And that would make sense because he was writing to who? To Hebrews, to Jewish people who'd been told the stories of these heroes from the, the time they were wee little ones. <laughs> For us though, we might need to fill in a few details to be able to come to more fully appreciate the faith of each of these people. Second, we'll note they're presented in chronological sequence and that, that had to be on purpose. It must be that the author wanted us to realize something about God's unfolding plan from the earliest days of human existence and on our tour we'll discover what that purpose is. Third observation is as we encounter these individuals, we'll note, as we have in the past, that they were all flawed people. <laughs> Every last one of them. Yes, each of them was commended for living by faith, but none of them was perfect. They were all sinners. I guess we could say they are sinful Hall of Famers. <laughs> Nevertheless, forth their faith, their faith brought them into a righteous standing with God. So these were saved people, justified before God, declared righteous by him, not because of how good they had been, but because of their faith. You know, sometimes you hear people say that, maybe you've heard somebody say this, well, people back in those days were, were saved by obeying God's law. These people would say, well, God had one plan for saving people back in the Old Testament, and then he had a different plan, another plan, for saving people in the New Testament, but Hebrews 11 shows us that's not true. God has actually always had one plan for redeeming and saving humanity, and it has always been by faith since the very beginning. We're gonna see that. And then I noted that their faith, in each case, caused them to obey to courageously obey God, even when it hurt, even when it felt risky, even when other people thought they were nuts. The faith in their heart showed up in how they lived their lives in courageous obedience to God. True faith always does that. And then I also noted this is interesting, none of them, listen, none of them during their lifetime received the full measure of what God had promised. It says this in verse 13, kind of a stunning verse. All these people were still living by faith, what? 
when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And that tells us something very important. It tells us that true biblical faith looks beyond just this life. This is a key aspect of faith. Seeing with eyes of faith means taking the longer view of things. and Looking ahead, not just to our future here, but beyond this life to the next life to all that God has promised us in our eternal future. So with those observations, let's let our tour begin. We're walking now through the halls of faith of Hebrews 11 in the first portrait we see hanging there on the wall in the gallery of faith. Everybody's looking over there, it's actually not (laughs) an actual painted portrait of Abel because we don't know what he looked like. But he's the first guy, Abel, Abel. Hebrews 11, verse four, by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. You've heard of Cain and Abel, right? Brothers, by faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. So here's the first person to ever come to God by faith, a man named Abel, human being number four, one of Adam and Eve's sons. So a key point of Hebrews chapter 11 is to let these Jewish readers know that salvation by faith alone is not something new, it's actually very, 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 very very old, dating back to the very first family one of the sons of Adam and Eve. And someone might hear that and say, well, what about Adam and Eve? What about Abel's parents? They're not listed here. Weren't they saved by faith? Well, before their fall in the Garden of Eden, they actually had the privilege of sight. They walked with God in the garden. They saw a manifestation of God, and that's the reason they're not listed as examples of faith, because they walked by sight. But Abel here is their son, and his brother Cain is not. And we'll see why. And so three things are mentioned here about Abel. He offered God, it says, a better sacrifice than his brother did. He was therefore commended as a righteous man because his offering was accepted by God. And it says he still speaks even though he is dead. I think to understand these aspects of Abel's faith, we've got to go back. We've got to go back and review the the key incident from his life that is referred to here, it's recorded back in the book, of course, in Genesis, Genesis chapter four. And here's how the first five verses read of Genesis four. Now Adam knew his wife and she conceived. That's some, that's some pretty intimate knowing, wouldn't you agree? He had sexual relations with his wife and she conceived and she bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man, that's what Cain means, his name, to get a man, I've gotten a man, a male with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. So she conceived again, had another son. And then there's a big parenthesis between that period and the next phrase. You know, they grew up, these boys did. And then it says, now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering from the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought 
an offering. His was the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And here's what it says. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So there it is. The Lord approved of Abel's offering and did not approve, rejected actually Cain's offering. And somebody might ask, well, what was so wrong with Cain's offering? Just this, it was not a blood sacrifice. Cain wanted to approach God on his own terms rather than on the terms that evidently God had laid out. For his offering to the Lord, Cain had brought a basket of fruit that he had grown in his garden, that he had grown in his field, but his brother Abel brought a slaughtered animal from his flock. So Cain's offering represented the work of his own hands. Abel's offering required a bloody death. Abel's offering was more excellent than Cain's and it was acceptable to God because it was a blood sacrifice. He knew that sinful people cannot approach God on the basis of their own works, their own efforts, the work of their hands, but only on the basis of an atoning blood sacrifice. A holy God had stipulated that. And again, somebody might ask, well, did Cain know that? We, we have to surmise that he did. Do we think God just left this very important matter to chance, to guesswork? Hey, bring something, you guys. You'll have to figure it out what. And, and, and how did Abel know to bring a dead animal? There's no doubt in my mind that God had revealed this to them and Abel understood what was required and he obeyed, but Cain wanted to do things his own way. As such, Cain is the forerunner of all false teachers down through the centuries who have decided they wanted to do this their own way and not come on God's terms and invented their own way of approaching God. And then I thought about this, it's, it's pretty likely I would think that these two boys had been given a preview of the way of God, the way to approach God by their parents, whose own sins had to be atoned for, right? When Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden, how did their sins get covered? Well, it tells us, we're told that God provided animal skins, and animal skins are not available for usage apart from killing the animal and shedding its blood, right? So do you think that the parents, Adam and Eve, ever, as they were tucking their boys into bed at night, ever told that story to those little guys? I'll bet they did. Sons, listen, don't ever forget what mom and dad learned. We all sin, you sin, we've sinned. God is holy and God requires the shedding of blood as an atonement for sins so that he can forgive us. We can't get anywhere near God without blood sacrifice. We've gotta believe what he says about this, sons. We must offer a blood sacrifice when we come to approach God. So they knew, they knew. They heard what God required. But only one of the boys believed it. Abel believed God and by his faith he obeyed. His blood sacrifice was temporarily, I should say, temporarily accepted by God. And then it says, God regarded him as righteous. Wow, that sounds New Testament to me. To be declared righteous, that's, that's, that's justification by faith. Found in Genesis 4. It's always been God's plan to justify people not by their good deeds, 
but by their faith in an atoning blood sacrifice. It's fascinating to me. Of course, that is a picture of an even more excellent blood sacrifice, right, that would be offered much later by Jesus Christ himself, not offering an animal sacrifice, but offering himself. Hebrews 12, 24 says, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Better because his sacrifice was once for all whereas these animal sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over again as with Abel. Did you note it? it said God accepted his offerings, plural? He had to keep repeating this over and over again. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse said this, it is at this point in the Bible, Genesis 4, the story of Abel, that the highway to the cross begins to be built. For Abel, it was one lamb, to cover one man. Later at the Passover, it would be one lamb to cover the sins of one family. Then on the Day of Atonement, it would be one lamb to cover the sins of an entire nation. And then at Calvary, it would be one perfect lamb to cover the sins of the world. Once for all. So Abel's faith shows us the way that sinful human beings can be accepted by a holy and righteous God. The way to be declared righteous in his sight through trusting in the sufficiency of the ultimate blood sacrifice. And he believed God's word and as a result, God approved his faith as genuine faith and declared him to be a righteous man. And interestingly, as I noted, it says that Abel still speaks even though he's dead. Did you see that? And I think there's some irony here because we know how Abel's story turned out, right? His brother Cain grew so resentful of Abel because Abel was approved by God and Cain was not that it says he went out in the field with him and he killed his own brother. He slaughtered his own brother. In a sense, he was trying to silence the voice of his brother Abel. That was the first murder in human history. So Cain tried to silence Abel, but it says he still speaks. He didn't succeed. Abel still speaks. How so? Well, we're telling his story today, aren't we? His story got recorded in the word of God, and so whenever we read it or whenever we preach it, Abel is speaking to us, telling us that if we want to come near to God, we must approach him humbly by faith. Abel, in a sense, is preaching today to us, saying, if you want to come to God, you've got to come on God's terms, not on your terms. And God's terms involve blood sacrifice. Well, that's Abel. The next portrait we see hanging in this gallery of faith is of a, a man who is relatively obscure. You may not have even heard his name before. His name is Enoch. It's interesting that he's included. Hebrews 11, verse 5 says, By faith... Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. So if Abel was an example of approaching God by faith, this next guy, Enoch, is an example of walking with God by faith. 
So back in Genesis chapter five, it tells us about all of the offspring of Adam and Eve, all the descendants of Adam and Eve, and it caps off each of their lives by saying they lived so many years and then they died. And then his son you know, lived for so many years and he died 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 and it goes on and on saying that until verse 21 of Genesis five where, where there's something that breaks the trend. It says this, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, the longest living human being, and Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not. <laughs> It doesn't say he died. He was not, for God took him. That's different. What it means is that he skipped dying. He skipped his own funeral. His faith was so pleasing to God that God just took him on home. So one day, Enoch was there doing Enoch stuff. And the next day at dinner, his kids are like, where's dad? And his wife is like, well, did you call him in from the fields yet? I've made his favorite dinner. And his kids said, yeah, we did. And then where is dad? And it's like, he's not here. He was not. He was gone. God took him. And the testimony of Hebrews 11, what's written, the inscription written under his portrait is that Enoch pleased God and then the writer goes on to say in verse six to say, you can only please God if you have faith, so therefore Enoch must have been a man of faith. Verse six, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. And it actually doesn't say he exists. In the original it says, must believe that he is. It's kind of, it's the third person of the I am. Must believe that he is who he is. And here's part of who he is. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so this is the verse, Hebrews eleven six that I'm offering to you today as our faith walk memory verse for this week. Hebrews eleven six. And this is the verse that's the foundation, really, of our eight great days of prayer and fasting, spiritual emphasis that actually begins today. Eight great days of prayer and fasting. In the middle of your worship folder, that center panel there, it talks about the schedule of prayer gatherings this week in the prayer chapel, 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., and there's some themes associated with each day, but, but mostly we'll be praying and asking God and seeking him by faith to do impossible things, impossible things. The God who is unseen, that we cannot see, but we're asking the God of the impossible to do that which humanly speaking seems impossible, and I know that each of us have something like that that, that burdens our hearts. God is pleased, it says, when his people exercise faith in him by earnestly seeking him in prayer fervently seeking him in prayer. We're gonna be doing a lot of that this week. I hope you'll participate. Enoch must have been a man of prayer, of faith-filled prayer, because it says he, he pleased God. 
This is also a verse I think that somebody needs to write on this floor tomorrow night in big, bold letters, <laughs> Hebrews eleven six, as a testimony to this congregation's desire to please God through living by faith in him. Abel shows us how to enter God's presence by faith. Enoch shows us how to please God by faith by walking with him every day, seeking God in prayer, expressing our dependence upon the Lord for everything. So Abel and Enoch, moving along through this gallery of faith, the next person we see, the portrait we see is a famous man whose name is Noah, Noah. Verse seven, by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. And by his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now certainly every Jew reading that would have been familiar with this man and with his astonishing story, right? And so if Abel shows us the life of faith and Enoch the walk of faith, then Noah shows us the work of faith. Just think about the faith it took for Noah to believe and then act on the warning that God had given him about things not yet seen, as it says. If we go back to Genesis chapter six, it reveals that, that God told Noah one day that basically he was fed up with the sinfulness of mankind like he'd had enough, it was, it was so, the evil was so rampant and, and so pervasive and so evil that, that, that a patient God's patience had run out. That's a lot of sinning, you gotta do a lot of sinning to cause God to run out of patience, but it, it basically says, you know, there's a statement in Genesis six that says, every inclination of, of every man's heart was always evil continuously, that's bad. That's evil. And it's like the cup of sin of humanity was filled up and God said, I, I'm, I'm sorry I made man. They are so wicked. But there was this man who was a righteous man, walked with God, and God comes to Noah and he reveals his plan to Noah and he says, Noah, I'm gonna wipe out the entire evil human race except for you and your family because you have found favor, you have found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I'm gonna judge the whole world and I'm gonna do it with a flood. And Noah must have thought, oh my, that is, that is horrible, but what's a flood? Because <laughs> he had never heard of such a thing. Then God said, well the earth is gonna be flooded due to a deluge of constant rain. And I imagine Noah thinking, oh, this is, this, is, this is terrible, but what's rain? He'd never seen rain before. The, the pre-flood world was covered in a misty canopy that created this lush, tropical climate where things just flourished and thrived, but, but torrents of rain would have been a brand new concept to him. Not to us here in central Ohio, but to him. It was an unseen thing, right? Floods, rain. Then God said, and, 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 and I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna save you and your family in an ark. And of course, Noah would have said, what's an ark? <laughs> he had no clue. 
Well, he would find out what an ark was because he would spend the next bunch of decades building it. This huge, flat-bottomed, rectangular barge, really. Huge, a football field and a half long, 450 feet long. God would give Noah specific instructions regarding the materials of this big box, the dimensions of it, which, by the way, called for a length-to-width ratio of six to one, six to one, 450 feet by 75 feet, which is what huge ships have been built by ever since. You see, God knows stuff. He knows stuff. This big box would have the capacity of, you know, those boxcars on the railways? 522 of those. Huge. And Noah and his boys would spend the next 120 years building this enormous barge. But what prompted him to do it? Faith. He believed God. He had nothing else to go on. God was talking to him about all these invisible things, things he'd never seen or heard of before, but he obeyed God because he believed God. That's why we can talk about Noah's work of faith. He believed the warning even though he couldn't comprehend all of it. I'll bet the neighbors were sure that he'd lost his marbles. He was losing it. Noah and Sons, construction company, worked on building that huge ship for all those years and all the while they were warning anyone who would listen, listen, the judgment of God's coming. The judgment of God is coming. But it was all unseen stuff, right? Judgment, floods, rain. What, what mocking he must have heard, but what faith he had to persevere. It was a faith that worked, a faith that obeyed God. In the last couple of weeks, I've shared with you five expressions of faith that we see in these characters and Hebrews chapter 11, it occurred to me that Noah exhibited many of them. We've talked about confident assurance in the face of the invisible. Did Noah have that kind of faith? Well, sure he did, right? He couldn't see God. God was invisible to him, yet he was certain he had heard from God. He'd never seen rain, yet he was sure it was coming. I've talked about courageous obedience in the face of the incomprehensible. Did Noah express that kind of faith? Well, yeah, he did. Think of all the mind-blowing things God told him were coming, a worldwide flood, a catastrophe of immeasurable proportions, all of humanity drowned, everything underwater, inconceivable to him. And yet he found the courage to obey God and build an ark. I've talked about continuing perseverance in the face of the intolerable. Think about the, the scorn, the ridicule, the mocking. Yeah, right, dude. What have you been smoking? I mean, what are you talking about? We're all gonna die, yeah. His friends even turned away, and yet for over a 100 years, Noah worked every day, hauling trees, cutting planks, pounding nails, pouring over the plans, laboring every day to construct something that seemed absolutely ridiculous to most people. I think I would have thrown in the towel after a couple of months. A hundred years? That's a persevering faith. By the way, if you've never gone down yet and seen the ark in Kentucky, that ark, the replica, if you've never done that, it's a great day trip. It's a great field trip. I encourage you with your small group or ministry team to plan a little excursion down there. Bring your wallet, because it's not cheap. But uh, it is massive, and it, it, it just... They've done a good job with it. I, I would encourage you to do that. I think we had a group go down last year. Genesis 7 
goes on to tell us that there came a time when all of this that God had warned about, all of this that God had promised would happen, came. Just as God had said. The torrential downpour finally came and it went on and on and on and on and on and the floodwaters rose and the people who despised God and rejected God were swept away and the earth was flooded. Thankfully, the boat proved seaworthy. It floated. And Noah and his family and the animals that God had sent him. Somebody, somebody said, how, how could that happen? How could all the animals from all the, the, the face of the earth, you know, in pairs come? Well, I mean, God is sovereign over nature, right? Amen. Remember when Jesus told the disciples that one day, hey, put your net on the other side for a catch. Do you think Jesus summoned fish into that net? I do. God is sovereign over nature. If he wants animals to gather at the door of the ark, he can do that. He can do that. God kept his word. God delivered Noah and his, and his family and the animals from judgment. Noah's faith was rewarded. Rewarded not just with salvation from drowning, but rewarded with righteousness. God declared him to be righteous. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention two quick things here. There is another worldwide judgment coming. Amen. Read about it in 2 Peter 3. In many places, Jesus talked about it a lot. God promised it due to the pervasive evil that still remains and is an accumulating, accumulating among the human race. Jesus said it will be like it was in the days of Noah. Like back then, God's judgment will come and it will be devastating. But I also want you to know, thankfully, there is an ark. There is an ark. Like there was in Noah's day. This one not built by Noah, but provided by God. It is a place of protection from judgment and the ark is Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ, you will be delivered, spared from judgment. That ark can be entered by faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus for sins and only by that his shed blood on the cross for us. Well, Hebrews 11 tells us three things about the faith of Noah. It says his faith prompted him to obey God. Genesis 6.22 says, Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. And Hebrews tells us it was his faith that prompted him to act and obey. This was the obedience of faith, an obedience that was risky and costly and it required a, a persevering spirit. He spent 120 years building a 15,000-ton boat in the middle of the wilderness by being, while being mocked by all of his friends and neighbors. And he did it for one reason, because God told him to, and he obeyed. You see, faith doesn't always have to understand everything. Faith doesn't always have to comprehend everything. Faith simply takes God at his word. Trust that God is telling the truth and as a result, faith obeys. It says his faith condemned the world. In what sense? In the sense that the ark that he was building served as this huge billboard, kind of this expanding billboard for 120 years announcing to everybody who saw it that God's judgment was coming. God was gonna condemn people for their unrepentant hearts and their prevalent sin. And Noah's faithful obedience in building the ark was testifying to that every single day. 
God gave people a chance to repent. But they refused. And they were condemned. And then his faith brought him into a righteous standing with God, like Abel, like Enoch. There's one more example that righteousness, which is what God requires, only comes to people by faith in the Old Testament era, in the New Testament era, and this very day. It comes by faith. It wasn't Noah's building of the ark that made him right with God, it was his faith. Verse seven says, by his faith he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. He received it as a gift from God. He was saved by faith and so are you and I today. So there they are, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Abel shows us that people must initially come to God by faith and trust in a blood sacrifice to atone for their sins. Enoch shows us that people must also learn to walk with God every day by faith, walk with an invisible God, having a relationship with him by faith. And that life pleases the Lord. And Noah shows us that people of faith who've been declared righteous in God will trust the word of God and will act on it even when it's hard and even when they don't completely fully understand it. Well, there are many, many more portraits yet to view in the gallery of the Hall of Faith. We'll get to them next week, at least some of them. Abraham and Moses and the like. But right now, I I wanna shift gears a little bit. I wanna ask you to take out of your worship folder um, that little connection card. Would you do that? Looks like this because we are getting ready to enter a season of stretching our faith. And I wanna challenge you to participate in this. Been talking about it for a little over a month. On the back side of this, where it usually has a place to put your prayer request, you noted it's a little different today, right? You see, I I believe that God would have us as a congregation seek him fervently this week for impossible things. Things that allow God to kind of flex and show show his muscle as it were, show what he can do. We, We don't dictate to God what he does but we discern what he wants to do and we we ally with him in bringing those things to pass through our fervent faith-filled prayers. I'm gonna ask you to participate in this upcoming week in some way, and and here's some ways I I put down on here. Attend at least one of those seven, seven prayer gatherings that I mentioned earlier. Every day this week, beginning tonight actually, 7 p.m. tonight in the prayer room back here, 7 a.m. tomorrow morning, so 7 a.m., 7 p.m. each day during this week. Attend at least one of those. I I know it'll do you well to gather with other believers and and hear the beautiful hum of prayer being offered up to God. Maybe you join me in praying 30 minutes daily, at least 30 minutes each day this week. Maybe you'll need to set aside something or do some fasting in order to do that. Come before the Lord in faith. Maybe you'll choose to fast a week of prayer and fasting and I've got a fasting guy that I if you haven't done much fasting in your life it looks like this they're up here on the on the stage and this will give you some guidance for just how to go about fasting and the, the word fast it simply means to deny yourself to deny yourself something that that you normally partake in in order to spend more time in prayer that's the idea 
Something is burdening you so much that you're saying, you know what? I'd rather petition God about this than eat. It's that important to me. And there's different kinds of fasts, different kinds of things you can give up. Somebody told me I'm gonna give up everything but chocolate this week. All right, I guess that's a fast of some sort. Maybe you fast from screens, from social media, fast from looking at your phone. I'm I'm not gonna, from Netflix, I'm just not gonna look at screens. I'm gonna take that time that I normally would have done that and I'm gonna pray. I'm I'm gonna get with God. I hope a number of you will attend the night of worship on Saturday night. So this whole week is gonna culminate on Saturday night right in this room with new carpet in a time of musical praise and worship and testimonies. People just sharing, hey, I've never fasted before. This is great, I, I got closer to God. People sharing, I've been praying for impossible things. I'm seeing some movement here on this particular front. We're, we're gonna spend some time together about just a little bit over an hour on Saturday night. And maybe there's another way that God's put on your heart. This is not a legalistic sort of thing. This is you getting with God saying, how do you want me to participate in this emphasis in my church? And then in the little box there to the right, it says, my impossible things prayer request. I believe the Lord has put on my heart to fervently seek him for the following. This is based on Hebrews 11.6. And I'm gonna ask you to fill something in there. Now, this is something that you don't mind being uh, public, okay? Because you're gonna turn this in. And your name's gonna be on the back side, okay? So this is probably not where you say, I'm praying for my husband Bill to stop beating me every day or something. You know, this is... This is something you want other people to know about so they can join you in praying in the prayer room where these will be 7 a.m., 7 p.m., something that you don't mind lots of people knowing about so they can join you and add their prayers to your prayers. So would you take a moment and think about what God is calling you to do in each of those areas? As you do, I wanna read you a story because I've been collecting these. An impossible things story. This is from Dave. And Dave wrote me and he said this, back in the summer of 1990, a young couple in their 20s were overwhelmed with a tidal wave of emotion that came from learning that they were gonna be first time parents. They weren't sure if they were ready, whoever really is ready the first time, So they spent time praying and they made sure they went to every doctor's appointment that was recommended. The first flicker on the ultrasound that indicated a heartbeat in their baby was a momentous occasion and from that point on they kept a close watch over both baby and mom to ensure that everything was well. So on an ordinary day, during an ordinary ultrasound at an ordinary appointment, something seemed a bit off when the ultrasound tech just wasn't as talkative as ordinarily expected. Even as that tech person cleaned everything up and put the machine away, little was said, and she quietly excused herself to go talk to the doctor. Minutes passed, and when the doctor entered, the frown on his face spoke volumes before he uttered a single word. He said, the amniotic sac is crumbling. He almost said it apologetically. You are going to lose your baby. There's nothing we can do. It shouldn't be more than a few days. As the young couple walked out of the room, they heard the doctor just say, I'm sorry. There were no questions. There was only blackness and heartache and tears, lots of tears. 
And those same phone calls that just a couple months earlier had informed family and friends that something wonderful had happened were now made again to share this very sad news. There's nothing we can do. That phrase kept running through the minds of this young couple. There's nothing we can do. Wait, nothing we can do? Okay, so is there something someone can do? And the phone calls began again. Please pray, they told everybody. Pray that God will work a miracle and save our baby, they fervently requested. And so the prayers began and the young couple were reminded that their family had some real prayer warriors, the down on their knees, crying out to God kind of prayer warriors. No, there was nothing the doctor could do, but others could pray and God could work. That they knew for sure. So, dot, 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 a couple of weeks later, The young couple with fear and trepidation along with hope and undying faith walked back into the doctor's office and into the ultrasound room. The ultrasound tech, fully aware of the previous visit's results, began the exam with a sigh and a frown. But then her eyes went wide as saucers and her mouth opened and a silent, oh my goodness, passed through her lips. I don't understand it, she said. Just a couple of weeks ago, the baby was almost gone. Now the amniotic sac looks perfect and your baby is obviously growing. This time the tears were tears of joy and they didn't stop for quite a while. So yes, many times man can do nothing. Only God can do the impossible. I know because that young couple, Dave writes, was me and my wife. And I just experienced the privilege of walking our daughter Allison down the aisle on August 23rd, 2019. 29 years ago our world was shattered and fell apart. But God, and a lot of prayers, put it back together. He is the God of the impossible. We don't dictate to God what he is to do, but he said ask, 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 seek, knock. Now about you, I'm knocking on heaven's door every day. It's me again, (laughs) I'm here again. I'm asking the God of the impossible to do impossible things for your great namesake so that Jesus, your son, will have the full reward of his suffering. I'm asking in faith, believing. And that's what we're calling each other to do this week. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, I pray that you would lay on the hearts of your people burdens to pray for impossible things like what we just heard about. Not a, not a sports car, not another boat, not another vacation home. I'm talking about things that would, would honor you and would be your will, Lord, and that, that you already wanna do. They're in your heart. Would you lay those burdens on your people even as you already have been doing? And may we, in faith, call out to an invisible God to do impossible things. For your great name's sake, I pray in Christ's name, amen.